Welcome to The Infinite Jungle, the podcast about the evolution of Ethereum. I'm your host, Christine Kim, VP of Research at Galaxy. And on today's show, what you can expect are two main big discussion topics. The first is finally, we've got a date for the Denkun upgrade on Ethereum mainnet. We're going to talk about how developers got to that date, why they chose March 13th as the official mainnet launch date. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what the upgrade entails, how that upgrade is going to change Ethereum, what kind of impacts we're going to see on um, Ethereum once the upgrade goes live. The guest that we're going to have on today's show is Flashbot's data scientist, Danning. We're going to be talking about MEV data and her work um, utilizing different parts of on-chain data and uh, working with different data providers. But before we begin, a quick disclaimer. I need to remind you to please refer to the disclaimer linked in the podcast show notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice, an offer, recommendation, or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Yesterday, developers have finally set a mainnet activation date for the Dankun upgrade. They decided that it would be happening on March 13th. Um, the reason why they set it basically roughly five weeks from yesterday is because they want to give client teams enough time to prepare their final client releases, their, the final versions of software that Ethereum node operators will run. Um, there was a bit of, of pressure, a little bit of a push from certain developers on the call yesterday. Um, and by the call, I mean all core developer consensus call number 127 these ACD calls that Ethereum developers have every Thursday. Um, on yesterday's call, um, developers had discussed briefly um, having these client releases ready um, one week, uh, basically within one week instead of two. But there are certain client te teams um, that had chimed in saying, no, 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 we need two weeks. Let's try and really make sure that the final polishes, the final um, like cleanup work that needs to be done gets done in, in the right way. So I personally was a bit relieved to hear that, um, that d developers would be taking their time with the final mainnet releases, especially given how complex this upgrade is. Um, and then again, you know, there was a little bit of discussion about, okay, well then how long does node operators need? How long does the entire network need to take these final client releases and then upgrade the software. So for node operators, for validate people operating validators on Ethereum, they're all going to need to upgrade their software. And um, developers had initially kind of discussed, maybe we should just make it two weeks. Um, but I think in the end, reason kind of won out <laughs> and developers went with three. Um, so three weeks for node operators to be able to upgrade their software, two weeks for client teams to really put out all their um, final releases. That's five weeks from when we're recording this show, roughly five weeks from when we're recording this show. Um, and that's, what, that's how developers landed on March 13th as the Denkun mainnet activation date. Finally, we can put to bed some speculation around when this upgrade is going to happen. Um, I've got to say, before every single upgrade, timing when this upgrade is going to happen is by far like the most like heavily speculated upon part of the upgrade, like when it's actually going to happen. And even when we talk about the next upgrade after Denkun, um, which has officially uh, been kind of dubbed its combined name, Pectra. Um, even as developers are talking about Pectra, um, they're talking about when it should be. When, when will Pectra actually go live on mainnet? Um, and near the beginning of planning an upgrade, these estimations are 
90% wrong <laughs> because as you actually start developing the upgrade and testing the upgrade, uh, the timeline usually does get, get, get extended. Um, so developers will get into it in a bit um, on, this, on this show about the discussions around Pectra um, and when it's going to happen. But uh, all this to say, I think many people can breathe just a sigh of relief of not having to wonder and wait and estimate again. I know personally. Um, and if you've been following along on this show, um, a March 13th activation date should not come as a surprise because we talked about this um, last show, last week, about how it seemed very likely that developers would pick a date for mainnet activation in March. Um, Three things that I just want to highlight about the Denkuna upgrade that's going to be going live. The first, of course, is the biggest code change going into Denkuna is EIP 4844, and it's really designed to reduce the cost of rollups, reduce the cost of these layered scaling solutions built on top of Ethereum. And one of the things that I think will be really important to watch is how ready are L2s for mainnet activation for Denkuna. Um, Tim Baiko on ACDC 127, the latest dev call, basically said, you know, I reached out to the top 10 roll-up teams, um, and the, uh, many of them said that they were going to be ready, you know, early to mid-March. Now, I think those estimations may be a bit optimistic. Basically, being able to upgrade roll-up software um, to be to integrate with with the Denkun upgrade. Um, takes time. Um, I believe that many L2 teams, uh, layer two roll-up teams, are already being already testing their infrastructure um, on the Sepulia testnets, on the Guerli testnets. Um, but there may also be, you know, a period of social governance that needs to happen on these rollups to really enact the upgrade as well. So even while testing and and the rollup team might be ready to go mid-March, um, there might be a governance process added to the end there to really make sure that the upgrade um, on these rollups happen to seamlessly integrate and, and actually utilize the additional block space that's created for rollups uh, through EIP 4844. So some things to really watch for is, you know, how, um, what are the fees for blob transactions? What are the fees for what rollups are, are paying to commit their data down to Ethereum? Because right now, Rollups are paying basically what users are paying. Um, users that are sending transactions directly on Ethereum, rollups that are trying to commit data down to Ethereum, we're all in the same mempool. We're all in the same um, market for block space. But now through EIP 4844, you're going to have dedicated block space that's exclusively for rollups. And the question is, um, that fee market for that very customized block space, um, how how expensive will that block space become? How utilized will that block space be? Are we going to see blob block space be completely filled up um, with roll of transactions? Or in the beginning, will it be uh, fairly underutilized? Um, so these are these are questions and and kind of like um, important things to be watching out for as the Denkun upgrade goes live. Um, we're going to see a ton of data on just how much does this upgrade impact rollup fees. So for the end user on rollups, um, how cheap is it going to become for them to send a transaction? Um, on, say, Optimism or Arbitrum after the Denkun upgrade? Are we going to see, you know, a significant decline in those fees for in, from the perspective of end users? I'm sure that roll-up operators, the sequencers themselves that are, you know, committing down to Ethereum, they'll notice, you know, um, 
perhaps like a, a significant drop in, in how much it costs to commit user transactions down to Ethereum to finalize those transactions. But I do wonder like how much those, those cost savings will be passed back to the end user. Um, so, you know, things to be watching out for. These are metrics and, and kind of interesting points of data um, that I'll be carefully watching, um, especially as the Denkun upgrade goes live. And it's not all about roll-ups only. There are some other um, kind of important EIPs that are going into Denkun. The second one that I'll mention is for validators specifically. Um, the maximum number of validators that can enter into Ethereum will be capped and set at eight validators per epoch. Um, this is to ensure that the validator set size doesn't grow to large for the network to be able to handle. Um, and this is really a Band-Aid solution. Developers are going to have to figure out um, a different way to ensure that the validator set size of Ethereum doesn't become too unmanageable in the long run. The setting of the cap and just making sure that um, no more than eight validators per epoch can actually enter into Ethereum at a time um, instead of, like say, nine or 10 or 11 and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, that's kind of a, another interesting um, change to the protocol that I think people should be aware of, aware about, especially if there's a spike in uh, people in demand for staking and people wanting to earn yield, um, wanting to earn staking rewards on Ethereum. Um, that cap is something to to note um, in projections of how long it might take, um, and may change a little bit the staking dynamics on Ethereum, but maybe not so much as the long term solution that developers are thinking about for Prague um, or Pectra, which is the combined name. Um, anyways, uh, with Max EB, now that I think about it, um, look at me. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm literally thinking about like seven things at the same time um, and trying to formulate them into sentences. But let me get back on track, say just as a brief note too, for, for the third part of, of Denkun that I think people should be aware about, um, for smart contract developers, there are, are actually some interesting new features and tools that um, will hopefully make um, smart contract coding on Ethereum a little bit of a better experience. There's um, the implementation of code changes like transient storage and mcopy. Um, I won't get into these into too much detail, but um, just note that this upgrade, though it is focused on rollups, there are other code changes in it that will be impacting validators and impacting smart contract developers. Um, so it's a pretty major upgrade and one worth watching um, when it goes live on Ethereum on March 13th to see how um, yeah, to see how it impacts the ecosystem, how it impacts all these stakeholders um, on Ethereum that are are building very cool things and potentially, you know, the future of, of what, we, what we might call the internet one day. Um, so that's Denkun. And even though I talked a lot about it, Honestly, developers are, are already kind of moved on from Denkun. There is still testing going into the upgrade, but the majority of what developers discussed on the latest dev call was the next upgrade, Pectra. And again, as I explained during the last episode, um, Pectra is a combined name for um, Prague and Electra. It's a portmanteau of um, the execution layer upgrade, which is dubbed um, Prague after 
the naming schema for execution layer upgrades are major cities, and then Electra, which is um, the name for the consensus layer upgrade that's happening, and the the naming um, convention for that is kind of major stars and constellations. So that's how we get Pectra, and sometimes on the show I'll call the upgrade Prague, I'll call the upgrade Electra, and sometimes I'll call them Pectra. But just know that I'm referring to generally the next major upgrade after Dankun. And because yesterday was an all-core developer consensus call, um, developers primarily referred to the name of the upgrade by its consensus layer name, Electra. Um, and one of the code changes that was not discussed initially, um, I think, for the upgrade, or at least it wasn't discussed heavily for the upgrade, is enshrined PBS, ePBS. And that was a really big topic on uh, this week's call. Um, um, it was the reason why it was a big topic was because there was a fairly significant incident that happened on mainnet on February the 6th. Um, one of the MEV relays, um, the blocks route max profit relay were delivered, but those blocks failed to be included in the canonical chain of Ethereum because those blocks um, were invalid. They were faulty blocks and the relay um, had a bug in, in it in that the relay was supposed to um, basically stop receiving blocks from a particular block builder. Um, if a block builder is building a block that is invalid and they submit it to the relay, the relay should be able to check that and say, oh, you know, I got two, three consecutive invalid blocks from you. Like, I'm not going to receive any more blocks from you, sir builder. That kind of process um, didn't happen. So what ended up happening was the relay just kind of sent through these invalid blocks to validators. And it led to nine um, missed blocks on Ethereum. And um, while it wasn't, it didn't cause, you know, uh, major like disruptions to, to, major disruptions to the network, like delays in fin finalization and, um, you know, major kind of uh, disruptions to the user experience, it did raise a lot of alarm bells um, from developers who were watching this and who um, know that there's an upgrade potentially coming that could remove the need for trusted relays, remove the need for validators to just blindly kind of accept blocks from relays and um, submit them to the network. And that's really what Enshrine PBS is. Enshrine Proposer Builder Separation is trying to remove the need for a trusted relay. And there's this quote um, that I just want to mention from the call yesterday that I thought was um, an important quote to the conversation. Um, Danny Ryan, basically at the end of this discussion of like, okay, do we want Enshrine PBS for, um, do we want to prioritize it for the Electra upgrade? Do we not? Is there even, you know, a, a design for ePBS that we all agree upon and that's ready for implementation? And, and Danny Ryan, who chairs these calls, um, said, quote, when I see this topic, aka ePPS opened up. There's a lot of questions as to what we are even optimizing. What is the right end goal of this? It seems there's a lot of varying opinions on that. The decision to include this first becomes the decision to figure out what is the design. Um, and the reason why I really like this quote is because every time we talk about MEV, um, which is, you know, the additional profit that validators can make on um, from building a block through rewarding transactions, um, through kind of playing around with, with the content, um, seeing what the content of the transaction is and reordering them in a particular way to extract more value. Um, when we talk about MEV, there's a lot of questions as to um, what type of MEV is good and what type of MEV is bad. And how should a network grow so that um, 
MEV is mitigated? Like, can MEV even be completely removed from a system? There's these kind of broader questions around um, around the ethics, around the the um, way that people view MEV and the way that MEV may or may not be able to be utilized um, to to actually help the user experience, um, especially with de- with different decentralized finance apps um, on chain. So now I'm getting into a little bit of a ramble, but the the this quote I thought was was it highlighted just basically the fact that while you might be able to to agree that we do need to remove the need for trusted relays, there's a whole can of worms around not just relays, not just that one part of how MEV is extracted on Ethereum, but a bunch of questions then on the related the related technologies, the related components of how MEV extracted. It's not just relays that are part of that big supply chain of MEV, right? Um, one of the developers, Terrence Sal from, from the PRISM team mentioned, look, the builder API, um, the software that we rely on for, for third-party block builders to submit these blocks containing MEVs to validators, um, that, that piece of software as well is needs work. Um, there are significant um, misaligned incentives there that we need to talk about. Um, and, and another PRISM developer um, by the name POTUS was talking about how, look, there's also um, the concern around many of these of these relays and many of these parts of the MEV supply chain being closed source, built with closed source technology that we as open source developers on Ethereum just don't know, um, can't really look into how they work or really investigate further um, what they're doing, whether or not they're engaging in censoring um, behavior, and all sorts of kind of misaligned incentives with the Ethereum protocol. So all that to say, I feel like I've, I've, I've gone way over my time with this call, but all that to say, Enshrine PBS is a big to- was a big topic and it will continue to be a big topic on further calls. Um, Ethereum developers are going to have a breakout session to talk about this, um, to talk about Enshrine PBS and its design implementation details and more. Um, in more detail. Um, but one thing that I think developers are really trying to hone in on and really um, get to the bottom of is what is the collective kind of approach and attitude towards how we want Ethereum in the long term to handle MEV, to um, like how Ethereum as a protocol should really view MEV and what is the right um what is the right end goal that we're trying to target here? Is it really to kind of get rid of MEV completely? Um, Who should, how should the gains of MEV be um, distributed or across different Ethereum stakeholders? Um, And to that, it just bleeds into so many other discussions. Um, It touches so many other parts of technology that on Ethereum, the builder API, we're talking about um, potentially different upgrades like, um, MEV burn and and so on and so forth. So I think it's going to open up another a whole can of worms, and we'll continue to get into it and discuss it on the show as we um, as we move forward. But with that, let's move on to um, the second part of our show, um, where I get to talk with uh, basically a, a subject matter expert and ecosystem participant that works on Ethereum. Um, and today, I'm so excited to be 
um, welcoming Danning from Flashmots onto the show. She just launched a new podcast, actually, um, about crypto data um, and some of the quirks around working with on-chain data um, with two of her colleagues. So we're going to learn a little bit more about um, her passions around on-chain data and um, and a little bit more about uh, her work at Flashbots, which is, you know, a major organization that's researching MEV as well. So we'll continue the discussion with her. Um, let's go ahead and bring her on the show. Hey, guys, welcome back to the show. Um, here with Danning, the, um, a data scientist at Flashbots. I'm so happy that you're here, Danning, because I have so many questions about crypto data, MEV data. We were just talking. I was just listening um, yesterday um, on the dev call about so many, so many. There's just a lot of, of, of conversations already about how to how do we improve the MEV supply chain? How do we get data on MEV? Um, lots of, of numbers flying around. Like what? Like ninety percent of blocks um, potentially being censored. You know, uh, builders only being like ten builders and relays only being like five relays. So they, there's a lot of, of of things coming around. And as you can see, I'm, my mind is in many places right now. Um, but thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm very excited to to dive into these topics with you. Um, but yeah, yeah. Thanks for the invite. A pleasure to be here. Happy to talk about MEV and data for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, first of all, I also want to um, um, say again that, you know, congrats on the launch of your podcast as well, uh, the Index Pod. Um, I know you hosted and then you hosted with two other colleagues. Is that right? Who who are your hosts again? Yeah, um, hosting with two other friends who are uh, also data scientists from all different teams. Uh, Hidobi from Dragonfly and a Boxer from Dune. So. Um, it's more like, a, how to say, Web3 data nerds friends chatting about stuff and kind of like joke about the chart crime we see on Twitter all the time, etc. I love that. Um, Hildavi is a, a big name, I feel like, for anyone who works on Dune or uses Dune. They all know Hildavi because they all use his dashboards. Um, <laughs> do you find yeah. that there's also a lot of like copying going on? Because I know sometimes that's a, a, a topic of contention of people like using other people's data and, and not giving credit, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think um, it happened probably maybe more earlier in the, how to say, uh, when communities started, when people started forking queries on Dune. But I think Dune has been doing a good job about like basically being able to bring the visibility of the originator. Um, and I think recently more, uh, we've been seeing it more like when Web3 people have been talking about this data for like forever, but now like, um, how to say, mainstream media starting to like copying the number and just, like, posting about it and without crediting. So um, I think a lot of the Web3 people have the awareness of like crediting and we love to credit each other. Um, we will bring that more, I guess, to the mainstream as well. Yeah, yeah. It really does flow also from the fact that so much of, of what we build is open source and it's not just the data, totally. but it's also like even the software that, that people, there's always, there's a, a lot of drama, I feel like even on, on um, in the L2 ecosystem too, of like, oh, you're using my VM or you're using my, you know, proven right. algorithm, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, to that, I guess, um, just going a little bit deeper into your work as a data scientist at Flashbots, um, when you're working with on-chain data and when you're working with um, data that um, 
that you could potentially be using from other data providers like Dune and, and whatnot, or maybe using your own proprietary stuff. What are some kind of like common um, misconceptions or mistakes that you think that um, people often make when they first start using or start getting into kind of crypto data, especially if they're using like a data provider or if they're trying to like get into it on their own? Um, from your experience, um, what has it kind of been like working with with on-chain data and how different is it, would you say, from kind of the prior yeah. experience that you had? Yeah, I feel like data provider isn't a big problem because actually, you know, across all data providers, they're providing the same copy of data, which is the charm of blockchain because we're all analyzing on universal database, basically. I think it's more of a few problems. For example, first is if when people just come to Web3, there is this context switching of like, what is a user? Like, so the way we define user in Web3 is so different. Everything's anonymous and it's hard to track. And you don't really know if multiple addresses contribute by one entity. So people may report like, oh, there's this, uh, this many DAU, but what is you here? It's maybe more like a DAW, like daily active wallets or something. Um, and like also when you report it, be like, oh, there's a hype of new users coming in, but it, you can't really say that's organically growth of users uh, of a protocol, but more it's possible a lot of like yield farming incentive things happening in crypto because it's basically sort of like a DDoS or a spam with low cost, especially in a lot of like L2. So uh, the way you read into data would be also tricky, I think. Uh, but I think it takes time, but people over time would gain this knowledge about how to differentiate between all these. Um, there are some misconceptions of like people may jump in and be like, oh, comparing these metrics across chain, particularly a lot of time people show Solana by comparing, say, mm -hmm. Ethereum. Um, now Solana has more number of transactions or contract calls or like logs, just mean more activity. But what really even is smart contract concepts in Solana, it, it's quite different. It's not really smart contract, but more like programs there. Um, so like you can't really compare it um, a lot of time. You say, oh, different chain. There is this chain has a lot more validators than the other one. But the security or consensus protocol might be totally different. And uh, like how to say the bar entry barrier or the cost to run validator might be different. There might be staking pool, etc. So. Um, something like, for example, people say, oh, the transaction is going up, but it may not mean, you know, there's new apps coming. It might be just inscription going on. Like people are like hyping about speculation. Um, the DEX trading volume is really high, but it doesn't really mean there's this many retail trading. Maybe a lot of them are actually maybe, maybe bots. So um, I think, yeah, go deeper beyond the surface is also a thing we will have to develop over time. Yeah. And specifically with the data that you work in, because you, you were mentioning kind of like when you look compare data between Solana and Ethereum or other L1 chains and Ethereum, like those data, that data that you're looking at, um, fees, um, for example, volumes, they might have different meanings. And then um, even when you look just at Ethereum, you know, the definition of what an active, a daily active user, it, it could differ from from uh, provider to provider and, and could just mean that, you know, it's not actually one user. It's like, um, it's not multiple users. Yeah. It's one user controlling multiple wallets. Um, when it comes to data on MEV specifically, um, one of the things that developers were talking about yesterday is how so much of the products that we we rely on for MEV is actually closed source. So, like, for example, the incident on um, 
that happened this past mm-hmm. week where the uh, max profit blocks route relay had gone down. Yeah. Developers were kind of saying, we don't know what the fix was. We don't know exactly how, what went wrong. Um, and then with the increase in the number of kind of private pools that are, um, private mempools that are kind of p- popping up. So, um, that people might be able to send their transactions in a more faster way or directly to a builder without going through the public mempool. Um, I'm just curious to know, like, is a lot of the data that you're trying to get hard to um, get? Is it very difficult to kind of figure out, um, you know, data from a builder or data from a relay um, because of the fact that this, this, the software is not, it's not necessarily running through like a public um, open, yeah. permissionless blockchain like Ethereum. Yeah, yeah. I think naturally it's a lot of, how to say, hustle to get all these data analyzed about MEV, how to say settlement or supply chain nuance, just because it's off-chain, first of all. And so you can't really just like go to Duno or any data provider to query on-chain copy or query a node. So, uh, but luckily, I think uh, it was a good, how to say, intuition that when the Flashbots team launched MapBoost, we also launched a standard data API, which is Relay API. So all the Relay, when they run MapBoost, uh, they will post all the received bids from builders, or and also they will post what's the winning bid and basically deliver the payload towards a validator. Um, so we have some level of data to analyze there, and that's why you see a lot of the community dashboard from, for example, Tony from EF, about like mapboost.pics um, and for example, like uh, payload.de, they have really great uh, data dashboard to show like within each slot, what's the bid look like coming from different builder over the slot time. Um, but I would say there's still a lot of like barrier to get deeper into the data. Like for example, uh, we know the bids, we know the winning bid, but we don't really know uh, what are the all the block that's submitted by each builder. So really are able to do that, but it's like a giant num- uh, like pack of data. So um, I doubt uh, any relay is caching that and sharing it to the community today. Um, and, and there's another also kind of like, um, how to say, sensitive aspect of like, say, flashbots. We were actually talking about this, like we're trying to understand what's the transaction latency um, today, like going through the private chain. And that was easy in public mempool case. So you just query a node. And you can check when do you get that transaction when when node gives you the timestamp. But now it's like it could exist in any of the builder's private mempool. And you, you, the only way you can either builder will share all their transaction batch with you, which is impossible because they would want to keep it private for you know bidding a higher uh, value block, um, or you can maybe estimate it when uh, it comes to the relay. But then that means we will be able, we will need to enable the caching of block content in relay side. But then that's kind of tricky because Flashbots is analyzing Flashbots relay data. But you know, like, but, but we are also running a builder and relay, so that can be a unfair uh, edge of competition. So we couldn't do that. So we're trying to find a way to, you know, potentially take a route. Uh, but yeah, so TLDR, I would say like private mempool definitely makes things harder to track. One is um, like latency aspect, like you don't really know when builder received the transaction, hard to know relay would receive the transaction. Um, another thing is like, uh, you don't even know if a transaction will be exclusive or not. Like defining exclusive, it means it was in only in one person or one builder's pool, or otherwise you can only say it's a private flow probably. 
So it, how, there's no way to even track if it's exclusive unless everyone posts what, what did they see. So yeah, um, there are some like other That's, rants I have. Sorry, uh, like for example, there's this behavior of multiplexing of user because like people want to send their transaction to land as fast as possible. So they might send to multiple builders. And in this case, like for a RPC provider like us, like Flashbots has RPC trying to land a user transaction, you may, how to say, disturb our metrics by many aspects. Like for example, we, always, we may see a very high revert rate because users sending to us, they're also sending to others. And it landed with others already, then we will see, okay, nonce is too low with this user transaction. Okay, revert. And it will be like a much higher simulation fault, uh, how did it, failure rate. Um, it may also overestimate our landing rate because when we find this user transaction, we always keep checking if it's on chain already. If it's already on chain, then we drop it. But then it could be on chain, like, but not because landed by us. Because the way when we report landing, it's like, oh, on chain divided by all the transactions we receive. So it, it might over-reporting a transaction landed by other builder. And overall, mm. it's also hard to identify if uh, any builder has misbehaved because what if a user transaction was front run or sandwiched through private mempool, but then which builder leaked the information maybe to some searcher then? Um, if it went through multiple builders mempool, it will be much harder to track. Fascinating. So because users, um, in order to get their transactions included in a block faster, if they send it to multiple builders, it becomes in definitely more difficult to track whether or not that transaction got even front run or sandwiched and by who. Um, and it's fascinating to also hear how we even define what a private order flow is. Is it if yeah. that transaction only goes to one builder or is it if the transaction just circumvents the public mempool? Like maybe it goes yeah, to multiple builders exactly. or it like it's seen by many people, but it just doesn't go to the mempool. That's and defining that, I, that yeah, that must be a, a real challenge. Um, it's great to hear, though, that there is these. Um, other sites like MEVBoost.pigs, um, Tony, mm -hmm. and like all these other people kind of working on MEV data and illuminating what is happening with MEV. Because before the merge, I feel like Flashbots was really the only organization that was building these tools and sharing information about how much MEV is being earned. But it seems now that there's more people aside from Flashbots looking at this data, trying to build on this data. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I definitely. I think it's also just the growth of um, MEV supply chain or itself as like a subdomain of the industry. There's like a lot more teams also working on MEV relevant products. So, yeah. And some of that data you had mentioned is like proprietary data. It's like data that builders have so that they can be more competitive than other builders. Um, they don't want to leak all of their strategies. And so there's this like kind of tension between we want to be as transparent as possible to be able to track what the heck is happening in the dark forest that we call MEV. Mm -hmm. um, but also we can't, um, there's there's like this trust breakdown that can happen. Um, do you think that to some extent there's parts of MEV that will just forever be unknowable to like the, to Ethereum developers, to Flashbots? Like how, how, um, to what extent do you think that like we can build tools to to really be able to understand what's going on um, in, on the MEV side? Like, for example, should we know what exactly went wrong with like the blocks route relay or does that kind of create, um, you know, create um, 
competitive disadvantages for that relay in comparison to others if they if parts of like their stack and parts of of what they do were were released to the public or or was be was able to be more like easily identifiable by like data scientists like you yeah i i think like the incident case uh is probably always good to be analyzed and to be shared and so other relays were and basically um, the design of all these uh, mechanisms can be improved or like avo- avoiding any of the issues. Um, overall, I think there might be some MEV that's hard to know by most of the other parties. Um, for example, like CFI, ZFI, arbitrage, like cross-domain MEV uh, would be a, how to say, um, a thing that can be very sophisticated uh, knowledge towards like traders. Like for example, you will know you will need to know how to uh, model the gain and like profits across like Binance price book and versus like on chain. And you um, it definitely requires like a very um, how to say um, as much as possible coverage towards all the AMM. So then you need to index as many pool as possible, and so to know as better as possible of all the MEV uh, accounted. Um, it's also, I think I, I think it might be even harder for L2 MEV to be quantified um, based on it's all these new features of like shared sequencer or like um, it doesn't have a mempool. So um, it, it's still a, how to say, a, a problem that we're trying to tackle with some new initiatives in the coming year. Uh, but overall, yeah, I think there's a lot of endeavor to uh, index MEV uh, already. So um, I think it's a sh- pretty good shared like taxonomy today. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the most important initiatives, I feel like, when it comes to um, figuring out how to deal with MEV and how to build products in a way that actually, you know, solves the MEV problem, so to speak. If you don't have data and if you don't know what's going on, it's very hard to really make right. tools and products that are going to actually um, change the game. And one of the products that I have been hearing so much about, Danning, especially from FlashBots, is this product called Suave. Um, I'd love to hear um, a little bit of an update on like what that is, how it's going, um, to what extent it's going to change um, data collection on MEV, um, to what extent it's going to change like the, the MEV supply chain right now. Um, I think that's another kind of big topic that um, people are, are thinking about this year, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, um, so disclaimer that I'm not a um, researcher working on Suave. We have a whole R&D team and research engineers uh, that's building Suave right now. But I can talk about like my understanding and our like internal jamming about how all the use cases about Suave. So my understanding of Suave is like, first of all, it's a hard problem. And so they're trying to build something really ideal, which is supposedly a generalized auction mechanism or like a platform uh, where any type of like order with auction uh, problems can come here and like provide uh, be provided with like permissionless platform. So uh, it provides uh, confidential compute and storage. So meaning like, you know, if you share your order, you can basically keep some of the private part information in like SGX or like Enclave. And, um, but then you can also configure it to be programmable, to be shared with others, um, to be, how to say, work on. For example, like very comp- uh, concrete use case could be like uh, building a block. So uh, if builders all come here and they can share their order flow to a entity that's like protected, say like SGX or whatever, and not know any party has more privileged info on it, and they will 
provide their, how to say, merging algorithm um, potentially as an application or like a swap, how to say, like a smart contract on swap chain. And then all those can be run and it might be able to uh, build a much more competitive uh, block with all these like shared uh, order flow, shared infra, shared subsidy maybe. Um, and in this case, it might be uh, able to build like a collaborati collaborative block building case. And, uh, and this might be a big statement, but I, in my imagination is that, you know, this may help smaller builders to compete with bigger builder. It may mitigate the uh, centralization problem in PBS. So I don't know, but it could be a direction, right? Uh, another case so, could be like... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. The 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 basically when a builder shares kind of what it wants included in a block, who does the aggregation? Like who kind of makes all of puts them together and makes them competitive? Is that the smart contract? It just it automatically My, kind of makes a more profitable block, or is there someone who's like running the SGX, running the kind of card? Yeah, yeah. My understanding is that. Um, Things will be uh, verified on chain. So, like builder, if you're willing to submit your merging algorithm into um, a smart contract on chain, then it's guaranteed that you're not mis mis uh, misbehaving. You're not censoring anything. You're not like trying to replace transactions. Uh, meanwhile, you are sharing your you know merging algorithm infra um, to uh, build the block potentially with more inputs from others, and potentially you can build a higher block. Um, and then so the value can be distributed also based on contribution, et cetera. Uh, but this is just like one wild uh, case we're jamming about. Um, another example could be like right, right now today, we know uh, there's a solver model in DEX trading platform like uh, CalSwap, Uniswap X, and uh, uh, OneInch Fusion. Um, so, but today, like with the ideal, I think the ideal um, design for those solver model is that um, all the solver, when they submit the um, routing results, to the and uh, how to say uh, to the platform, it should be a permissionless process um, that there is something that's deciding um, which routing is the best. But today, it lives in a centralized uh, backend of CalSwap or Uniswap X. They will decide, oh, this um, solver has the best price, and they will submit it, or the solver will submit. But imagine if that auction process can be living in Swap. As like a smart contract, then you will you will be able to remove the trust uh, assumption to CalSwap or Uniswap X as a platform. So that will be potentially be able to realizing the permissionless um, design actually. Swav sounds like a general purpose blockchain where people can build smart contracts, but specifically for builders, like <laughs> like smart contracts think, for builders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's um, a great way to summarize. Yeah. Are you is how uh, how soon do you think builders will be able to um, build their own smart contracts, start using the swap chain? Yeah, so right now we're still working with um, developers and teams to um, talk about all these use cases and trying to deploy it in testnet. Um, I think our team would want to do some more hackathon and uh, events around East London time. Um, we actually announced it in Twitter. We're gonna um, have a uh, event called uh, amiv.market so um, keep posted and check it out at London love that and I've got to make a quick shout out I mean this probably isn't your team on flashbots but every time I listen to the all core developer calls and they're talking about if you're on trying PBS they're talking about MEV boost talking about the builder API there's no one from flashbots there 
talking about these products and tools that Flashbots made. Like, the developers are talking about it as if it's, like, this kind of... Ran, it, it, as if it was like these tools were dropped from like heaven and they just like now have to deal with it. But I'm like, remember that time when we were going through the merch and there was a representative from Flashbots on every single week talking about these tools? Like the organization is is the people who've built this with like understanding and ideas in mind of how MEV should be handled. I think it are there. They exist. They're working on, on you know, new products and tools that might change the game. Um, I'd love to see some more Flashbots folks on the call, I got to say. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think it's kind of intentional and maybe kind of like in brand with Flashbots. Um, they're trying to, um, you know, uh, establish with us that, you know, it's a collective rather than a company or organization. So um, I think like it's also intentional that we don't have a Twitter account and um, people would go to like Discord or more like where the ecosystem or community lives, some Telegram group chats to discuss about things. Uh, and yeah, it, Amini Boost itself is an open source software. So it's great to see actually the ecosystem is designing around it and like developing it further. Not saying it's like 100% great. I mean, there's a lot of problems today with MMB Boost. So yeah, we'll see how it can evolve. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy how this whole builder relay ecosystem has evolved just from MEV Boost. Like from the merge onwards, the changes that have happened to the MEV ecosystem on Ethereum are wild. Um, and I'm sure there's more changes still to come. So thank you so much for being on the pod, for talking with me a little bit about your work, working with on-chain data, MEV data, really fascinating stuff. Um, and thank you for the update. We're going to have to have you back on once, you know, when we have when we have more developments around uh, what Flashbots is working on, Suave and other data tools. Um, hopefully, you know, we'll be able to talk even about uh, some of the, the tools that you guys are building around order flow data too. Um, maybe as, as like kind of a, a final and, and more fun question, um, not that, you know, this conversation yeah. is fun, but <laughs> like maybe a more called, uh, because like an Ethereum culture question that I've been asking most of my guests is, um, what's the, um, what is your Ethereum conference of choice? Um, what Ethereum conference do you most enjoy going to, um, and why? Yeah, um, I would say DevCon is the top choice um, because, like, it's it's a bigger stage with all the developers who are you know very technical and like people all the or how to say the product team is coming to release a big launch and so you know most of the exciting stories from here. And uh, I would say Dev Connect, I really loved it last year. Uh, it's also very Ethereum centric and it's like a lot of infra people and like Ethereum Foundation people come out talk about next stage of the design or EIPs. So um, definitely love those as well. Um, I go to East Denver all the time. I think it's totally different vibe there. Um, it's kind of like spread it out in the city and a lot of the uh, people you meet could be like, oh yeah, I just met, I just heard about Ethereum. I, I love this NFT. I'm a designer and I, I launched a co collection. I think it's great in its way as well. It's like maybe a lot more noisy, but also very grassroots, I would say. Like all the people who are curious and love about it can apply to give, have a talk and et cetera. So yeah, I think um, those are the top ones I would go to for sure. 
Nice. Yeah, and to for East Denver, it's free too. So if you're listening right. and and you're in the states and you're uh, wanting to go to an Ethereum conference, um, I do also recommend East Denver. Um, are you going this year uh, at the yeah. end of this yeah. month? Amazing. Yes, I will so, be there. Yeah, and I will want to like talk to all the MEV people. Um, I think the team isn't planning any events to to host, but um, we'll love to meet people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to meet Danny in person, she's going to be at ETH Denver this month. Um, and I'll g- give another shout out for your podcast, um, Indexed Podcast. Um, if you want to hear more about Crypto Data Insights, be sure to check out Danny's pod. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for listening again to Infinite Jungle, um, for following along with the show. And um, I love to see all of everyone's comments and feedbacks on um, you know the what we talk about. Um, so keep it up on Twitter and and whatnot. Be sure to like, subscribe, do the things that um, you know get you interacting with the show. Those really help a lot. Um, that's it for today. That's it for for this episode. And um, I'll talk to you guys again next week. Thanks, guys.